you would please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, we're starting in verse 18, picking up where we left off. Genesis 9, beginning in verse 18, this is God's word. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Well, I can give you a brief summary of what we just read. Noah had three sons. They were with him in the ark. After the flood, Noah planted a vineyard, got drunk, lay in his tent naked. One son saw this and decided to make fun of him to his brothers. There weren't a lot of other people to make fun of him to. And uh, the two brothers did not join in mocking their father. Instead, they tried as discreetly as they could to cover his nakedness. And he woke up eventually, found out what had happened, and in his anger, He put a curse on his grandson, interesting, not on his son Ham, but on the son of Ham. Ham was the one who had offended, but it is Ham's son, Canaan, who is cursed by Noah. And then blessings are pronounced on the other two boys who came in and covered him, but um, their blessings also contained further reinforcement of the curse on Canaan. That's pretty much it. Well, what in the world 
do we want to do with that? Well, actually, it raises some questions and it gives us some answers. Um, one thing that is reinforced is the fact that these were the only people and we're all descended from Noah. Now, they had wives, of course, but it's through this family that our genealogies are traced. Some people, I don't know which would be a stronger characteristic of these people, um, evil, moron. Um, I'd say both labels would apply. Some people have tried to take this passage and use it as a justification for enslaving people from Africa. They really have. Go back and study the history. People who claim to be Christian. Now, does that mean that Christians are the ones who started the slave trade? No, actually, the slave trade um, started after generations of Africans enslaving Africans. Some of the chiefs found that they could make money by selling their neighbors to folks who would take them and sell them to other people in other countries. Um, so really, this is, this is a problem of Africans. No, 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 not at all. The word slave is coming from the root Slav, as in Slavic, as in the people of Eastern Europe, like some of my kids are descended from. We adopted three kids from Ukraine, and uh, it would be safe to say they are of Slavic ancestry. Because people up in that part of the world were enslaving people a long time ago. Um, if you look at world history, you will find that slavery used to be a problem among various people all over the world. And if you look at current facts, you will find that slavery is still a problem in many parts of the world. You will also find that the people who fought to abolish slavery were actually Christian and felt that it was their responsibility as followers of Christ to end that horrible practice of treating people like property. So, what about somebody who would suggest that this curse on Canaan was a curse on black people. Well, I want you to think for just a minute. Just strain your brain and try and think, can you think of a place in the Bible known as Canaan because the descendants of Canaan lived there? They were called the Canaanites, and they lived in a place called Canaan. Yes, exactly. Is that somewhere in Africa? No. No, it's not. That's why I used the word moron as well as the word evil to describe people who would make such a suggestion. Because you really have to be determined not to know the truth in order to think that the curse on Canaan was a curse on people who aren't 
Canaan's descendants. Got it? Just so you know. Okay, well, so can we move on? No, no, no. There's a whole lot more we need to look at in this passage. For one thing, this didn't happen right after they got off the boat. Canaan wasn't on the boat. They started having families after they got off the boat. Not all of those people are named here in these verses. Just one offspring is named, and that's because he's the one who had the curse visited on him. Canaan. But there was some time that had gone by. Um, when Mr. Pat plants something in the garden, he doesn't harvest the fruit the next day, right? And when Noah planted a vineyard, it takes a while for a vineyard to grow. And then it takes a while before it really yields good grapes. And then in order to have wine that will intoxicate you, you have to have time for the fermentation process. So this was some years later. Time has gone by, okay? You don't plant a vineyard, and then a few months later you get the grapes, and then a few months later you've got wine. This was years after the flood. But Noah, after everything he'd been through, managed to get drunk. Is this because prior to the flood they didn't know about fermentation? No. Is, is this because Noah was just naive? He would never have gotten intoxicated if he had known about intoxication. No. Noah did something he shouldn't have done. He got himself drunk. And one of the things you need to understand about people who get intoxicated is they do stupid things. Now, back before the Lord convicted me when I was a house parent at French Camp Academy that I ought not to ever drink again, back before that happened, I would occasionally, starting in college, have a glass of wine. But while some people drank wanting to get drunk, I never wanted to get drunk. You see, some people really long to get out of control, just to be able to just go wild. When I was 14 years old, I had appendicitis. They gave me anesthesia so that they could operate on me. When I was recovering from the anesthesia, I don't know what I said or what I did, but apparently I did or said something I shouldn't have to a nurse. And she slapped me in the face. And so subsequently, when she had to come back and take care of me there in the room, and I was more recovered from the anesthesia, I said to her, um, ma'am, I don't know what I said or did that upset you, but please forgive me. I'm sorry. And she said, let's just forget it. I thought, well, okay. I didn't say, what was it I did? What did I say? What I know is this. Thank God I have a sensor 
I, you may think I say some things I shouldn't from time to time, like calling someone a moron, okay? But if you knew what thoughts come into my head, you'd say, wow, Pastor Wood, that is really impressive that you exercise such self-control, okay? I don't want to lose that censor both because I don't want to say and do things that are displeasing to the Lord and also because I have enough vanity that I don't want people to think I'm an idiot. You understand? I can do stupid without alcohol. I can make mistakes and say things I regret without being intoxicated. And so if I was intoxicated... All bets are off. I would undoubtedly say and do many things that are worse than the things I have said and done. You understand? Now, by the way, for those of you who are wondering, so God convicted you not to drink anymore, yeah, if you don't know that story, in a nutshell, a little boy who was new to French camp asked me the question, do you drink? I hadn't had a drink in probably a month. Because... I didn't drink to excess. It was just an occasional thing with a spaghetti dinner or something. But I had to translate what that little boy was asking me. What he was asking me is, am I safe here? Because I was his house dad. And he had come from a family where his stepdad was a nice guy, except when he drank. But when his stepdad drank, he turned into a monster, a violent man. And that's why that little boy was at French camp. And so when he said, Mr. Wood, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, do you drink? I realized what he was really asking, and I said, no, I don't. And that was the end of me drinking. Because if I'm going to minister to kids who come from difficult situations, they've got to know that they're safe. That I'm not going to be nice except when I drink. And that's why our staff here at the ranch does not drink. It's not because you can't be a Christian and imbibe alcohol. It's because we want to be sure that kids who have a high risk of becoming addicts themselves know that you can live a very happy life without alcohol. Does that make sense? Because most of the kids who come to Wears Valley Ranch come from a background where substance abuse has been a significant factor in the problems in the home. Not all, but most. And if you come from a family where there's substance abuse issues and addiction issues, you don't just have a 25% greater likelihood of having a problem yourself if you get started. It's not just a 50% increase in risk. It's not just a doubling of risk. It's greater than that. The male child of an alcoholic father who never has contact with that father. Okay, It's not the father's influence. It's not the father's example. The male child of an alcoholic father who never has contact with that father has a 900% greater risk of becoming an alcoholic than males at large. 
you got to be kidding me. Where did you get a statistic like that? From Anderson Spickard, the head of the Alcoholism Treatment Unit at Vanderbilt University for many years, who wrote an excellent book called Dying for a Drink. And I recommend it. It's not in print anymore, but you can find it on the internet like that. It's an excellent book. And I know some people whose lives were saved as a result of waking up to the fact that there was a major addiction issue in their life or their loved one's life. So uh, what you're saying is you're, you're, you, the whole message you get out of this thing is don't drink. Now that's not the whole message I get out of it, but I want you to understand that when you drink alcohol, you are increasing the risk of having a real mess up. It's kind of like when I'm driving down the road and I decide I'm going to text and drive. Right now, according to a couple of studies I saw, there are as many people having wrecks because of cell phone use as there are having wrecks because of driving under the influence. Driving while distracted has become an epidemic. So what do we need to do? Get a little thing to put your phone on and talk to it. <laughs> is that okay? Well, it's a whole lot better than doing this. You understand? Pastor, I mean, they didn't even have cell phones in Genesis chapter 9. Why are you talking about that? Because what I'm telling you is this. When I do certain things, I increase my risk of doing something that could hurt me or hurt others. Okay? Now, if you don't care about yourself, care about others. If you don't care about yourself or others, repent. Get a life. Realize that your life matters and so does the life of other people. Okay, so now can we move on? No. There's this other thing happening here. Nakedness. The particular thing that Noah did was not just to get drunk, but while he was drunk, he got naked. The good news is he was naked in his tent. Okay, it was his tent. He wasn't naked in somebody else's tent. But it still was not a good situation. Okay? I mean, maybe the grandkids came over to play. Maybe Canaan came over, you know. But he's lying unconscious, naked in his tent. And this is treated as hilarious by his youngest son, Ham. And Ham, seeing it, doesn't do anything to help, doesn't do anything to improve the situation. Instead, he goes and gets his brothers. And he's like, guys, you got to see this. <laughs> Dad is absolutely wiped out. He is unconscious. He's lying there stark naked. Like, come on, come on. 
Chesed. No way. We're not going to make fun of our dad because he's in that condition. And the two of them got a garment and walked backwards, which I've always thought was kind of bizarre and maybe unnecessary. But the fact is that's what they did, and the reason they did it was because they saw what their brother did as more scandalous than what their father had done. See, making fun of him in that condition and trying to expose him further by making his private mess up a public thing, they were like, we're going in the opposite direction. And so they took a piece of clothing and walked backwards and put it down over him. So uh, I guess uh, our bodies are something we need to be kind of ashamed of and make sure nobody ever, nobody ever sees us. I, I had to go to the cardiologist uh, Monday, I think it was. Yeah, two days ago. Went to see the cardiologist. I have to do that once a year. I don't have to, but they tell me to. And so uh, anyway, um, the nurse who you see always the nurse before you see the doctor. The nurse was a woman, and she asked me to um, take my shirt off because she was going to do an EKG, okay? So I took my shirt off, and I sat there like this until she came in and then reluctantly allowed her to see the full torso. And... Um, she put these little pads on there and hooked them up to wires and monitored it just briefly and then took them off. But let me tell you, it was so liberating to be without a shirt for a few moments that I almost came down here that way this morning. I, I, I took a shower this morning, and when I got out of the shower, I thought, well, I do need to put on pants, but I think I'm just going to preach without a shirt. And then I thought, no, I've got to have something to hook the microphone on. And, and since, you know, I mean, I do have chest hair, but that could be uncomfortable. So I, I put on a shirt for you all. Uh, well, Pastor, what, what are you talking about? That's nonsense. Yeah, it is nonsense. When I'm asked to take my shirt off, I don't cringe and try and cover up. Well, that's because you're a guy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But what you will find is, that what constitutes, and you might even want to write this down, what constitutes modesty in one setting is not the same thing in another. Okay? What constitutes modesty in one setting is not the same thing in another. What do you mean, Pastor Wood? I mean that if I was going swimming... I would not be dressed like this. And it would not be immodest of me not to be dressed like this. But if I dressed for swimming when I came to worship, that would be inappropriate. Why? Is our body a bad thing? No. But there's appropriateness 
A-P-P. R-O-P. Appropriateness. Can you, can you write down something phonetically that'll work for you? Okay. Appropriateness matters. It's fine for a doctor or a nurse to see your body in the course of a medical exam or procedure. But I got a bunch of doctor friends. We've got two doctors on our board of directors. When they come to board meetings, I don't take my clothes off. Okay? Because the reason that I'm disrobing is for a medical exam or procedure. Got that? Okay? I disrobe to shower. Okay? And I don't think, boy, I hope my kids don't find out. It is appropriate to be without clothing when you are bathing. Nothing shameful about that. Your body is not a bad thing. Your body is an amazing creation of God. It is appropriate, if you haven't, if you weren't here back eons ago when we did the series on Song of Solomon, first time I've ever taught on Song of Solomon to a group of children, but if, if you haven't heard that series, you ought, you ought to go back and listen to it. I would recommend that as a thing that some of the houses might want to say, okay, we could do that in the home sometime. We could listen to that. In the context of marriage, nakedness is great, okay? But my wife and I don't walk around the house that way because, hey, we're married, okay? And the reason is because someone may come to the door and it would be a bit awkward. You understand? I don't have to feel badly that my wife's going to see me without my clothes, and I'm happy to see her without hers, but it's not appropriate for us to take something that is private and treat it as if that's for everybody. This is my Apple Watch. It monitors my heart. My cardiologist wanted to be sure I was still using it. Um, I like my watch. It's, it's fairly expensive. I mean, there are much more expensive watches, but, but mine is a nice watch. You know what I use it for? To do the things it was designed for. I do not use it to hang pictures. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, got to get this nail in. I don't do that. Why? Why? You don't think your watch is tough enough? I don't think my watch is designed to drive nails. Your body has a purpose. It does a lot of good things for your benefit and for the glory of God. But I'll tell you something. There are certain parts of your body, and the Bible discusses this, that are covered not because they are not valuable, but because they are especially valuable. Because they are precious, we cover them. Okay? 
I don't wear gloves everywhere, but I remember, like Michael Jackson did, but I remember when ladies didn't go out in public without gloves. Now, there were some women who didn't have the luxury of living at that level of affluence and having everything else done for them. But ladies always wore gloves. It was considered immodest if, or coarse if they went out without gloves on. I'm talking about even in the summer, okay? They wore lovely little embroidered gloves. My grandmother told me, my grandmother was born in 1874 when she was training for the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. She lived next door to Mark Twain who wrote Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, various other things. She, that was the next door neighbor. She and two girls lived, two young women, lived in a duplex on this side. Mark Twain and his daughter lived on the other side. Isn't that cool? She said, Jimmy, it was so difficult back then. We didn't wear dresses with a full formal train. They had what was called a demi-train. It's just about this much fabric that trails out behind you. And the problem was you had to keep your dress clean, but you couldn't expose your ankle. And when the streets in New York, many of which were not even paved, would get muddy, you had to be able to cross the street raising your skirt enough to keep it out of the mud but still not show your ankle. Because at that time, a lady's ankle was considered very exciting. Men used to refer to certain women as having a well-turned ankle. Now, what they were talking about when they say well-turned is like a piece of wood that you use on the lathe and you do a real good, shop, uh, good job shaping that in, in wood shop, okay? So if, if it was well-turned, if you'd made a good piece of furniture or something there on the lathe, that was what was evoked. That exciting image was evoked when men saw certain ladies' ankles. Oh, oh. can you imagine living in that world? Gradually, it became okay for even proper ladies to allow their ankles to be seen. And eventually, skirts rose all the way to mid-calf. The lower part of the leg, it's okay. Men can handle that. And then eventually, almost the whole calf could be seen. But not the knees. Eventually, it became okay to expose just half the knee. Now, by the way, I lived through the part where knees started to show. That's how old I am, okay? And I remember the controversy about that. It's like, you know, is that okay? I mean, you know, well, yes, I think that's all right. 
But then it got to where women were walking around. You could see their whole kneecap. If the kneecap was visible, I mean, if it was, you know, sometimes it's buried under other tissue. But in any case, you could see the whole kneecap. But no thigh, thank you very much. Well, everyone knows what happened. Pretty soon, it was above the knee, mid-thigh. Eventually, women were wearing little more than belts. And then they had to come up with a new trend, so it was the maxi. That's a long dress. They're back. The 1960s and 70s are being relived even on this campus. Thank you, mentors, for making me feel old. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness, everything old is new again. I'll just tell you something. You cannot solve the modesty problem by making more rules or adding more fabric. You understand? That's not ultimately what it's about. And our bodies are not shameful, but they are valuable and therefore shouldn't be treated as no big deal. The reason why we need to be modest in the way that our bodies are shown or not shown is not because bodies are bad. It's because we don't want to devalue our bodies or the bodies of others. When I was a kid, for me to get a dollar was a big deal. Okay? I mean, it was a big deal. Eventually, in order to excite me that much, it had to be a five. If I had five dollars, now, now I can buy something. Back then you could. But eventually, as I got older, I mean, five dollars was not really that much. I was having to put gas in the car. Gas was like, you know, I think 32 cents a gallon if, if you got the good stuff. It was over 40 cents a gallon if you got the premium stuff, but I was not crazy. So um, anyway, it, you know, $5 became $10, $10 became a 20, $20 became 100. What has happened is that our money has been devalued. Now people can't buy a lot with a little. It takes a lot to buy a lot. And I don't want you to do that with your bodies. God doesn't want you to do that with your bodies. Don't treat them as if they're no big deal. Your body is really amazing. There are parts of you that hopefully no one will ever see. Well, I thought you said in marriage. I'm talking about your heart and lungs. Okay? I, I would feel horrible if I found you and your heart and lungs were exposed. I wouldn't be like, oh, cool. I, you know. No, that would be dreadful because my heart and lungs are, are a shameful thing. No, they're, they're really wonderful and you need to keep them inside you. I've always felt kind of bad about my heart and lungs. Well, you need therapy. But I want you to understand, 
The fact that something is good and valuable and working properly for the glory of God doesn't mean that it's for public display. Is that clear? The fact that it's not for public display doesn't mean it's not good and valuable and for the glory of God. You with me? Noah got naked because Noah got drunk. And the consequence of his bad conduct ended up having a ripple effect that messed up his family for generations. Now I'll tell you something. One of his descendants is a man named Jesus. And Jesus, not not one of Canaan's descendants, by the way, but one of Noah's descendants is a man named Jesus. And Jesus, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, did something that absolutely wipes out all the curses in all the generations for anybody who puts their trust in him. And the result of his perfect obedience to his heavenly father, perfectly honoring our father in heaven, the consequence of Jesus' perfect life, perfect death, perfect resurrection, the consequence is eternal life for all who believe. He not only removes the curse, but he makes us part of his family forever. Amen. Look to him. Look to him. We're descended from Noah. But folks, Jesus is the one who saves. And he's my brother. And he offers life to you. Don't miss it. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us. Thank you that we do not have to live under the yoke of the law or guilt or shame. All of our sin is under the blood when we trust in Jesus. And so we pray that this day we would live for you with joy and confidence. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.